This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book and is number five of the series dealing with salvation. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together. So those of you who are sharing with us this tape recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a moment or two and read two chapters in the prophecy of Isaiah, chapters 61 and 62. We have been looking at various aspects of this wonderful subject about which every one of us must be concerned, salvation. For unless we are saved, we have no part nor lot in the wonderful purposes of grace and glory that are unfolded in this book. And in our first study, we naturally observe that salvation suggests a lost condition, deliverance, from bondage is one of the great types and symbols. And in the second study of this series, we discovered that salvation was not merely an act of kindness on the part of God who let us off, but he spared not his son, so that God might be just, and to justify him that believeth in Jesus. Or as the Old Testament puts it, a just God and a Saviour. So we find in Christ a substitute and a surety, an anti, anti, one against the other, an anti-neutron, a ransom for many. And then we, in the third study, we learned, of course, that which we blessedly know by experience, that salvation is by faith. But we also remember that salvation is by grace. And faith doesn't merit salvation, it's only a means to an end. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We analysed, and we found that it didn't mean that faith by itself was the gift of God, but it meant the whole scheme of salvation by grace through faith didn't originate from ourselves. It was not of works, it was the gift of God. And then we had our attention drawn to the fact that the word gift Everywhere else in the New Testament, that particular word gift is a gift that a man brings to God. The gift of the, the wise men that came at the birth of Christ. The gift the priest brings when he has his ministry in hand. It's always a gift brought to God except this one place. And in this one place, it's God who's stooping down and bringing that sort of gift to us. So here is a wonderful salvation, a wonderful salvation indeed. And then we looked at various outcrops that belong to this salvation, because it must give us, it must give us at the very beginning, life through his name. So we looked at the various things that were associated with believing and having faith, life, access, acceptance, Peace, forgiveness, hope is, is connected with faith and the prospect of glory, all the many things that we could speak of. And so we come this evening to number five of this series where we are considering some of the things that are related to the evidence of salvation. Now we have the witness in ourselves and we may not be able to convince anybody else but there is also an external witness that should be, in some degree, manifest. 
that we do belong to Christ. And the figure that is used in the scriptures more than any other figure is that of clothing. We read, didn't we, just now, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with a robe of righteousness. Even the poetry of it doesn't get, as it were, carried away and he forgets the doctrine. If he says garments of salvation, he will say robe of righteousness, for they do walk together. And so, a little bit earlier, we have that call uh, in this um, same epistle. Awake, um, put on thy beautiful garments, as though the very fact that you awake and stand up in newness of life will immediately be followed by putting on the beautiful garments of salvation. I've got two quotations here that I just happened to come across before I came out this evening. Our actions must clothe us with an immortality of loathsomeness or glory. Somebody is using the word actions and then says clothing us as though what you wear in some measure will indicate what you are. I don't know whether that's quite so true today for... I don't know whether we dress according to the circumstances. Some of us get lectures about the way we dress, of course, you know, and as well as I do. But nevertheless, there is some connection still with regard to propriety, with regard to dress. I have had an occasion to do the sad office for some of our dear friends of a funeral service. Well, it would be utterly wrong for me to disregard propriety, wouldn't it? and turn up any old hell. And so with regard to salvation, we're not saved by what we wear, but what we wear may indicate how far we've appreciated salvation. I've got another quotation here, you may guess where it comes from. Costly thy habit, as thy purse can buy, but not expressed in finery, rich, not gaudy, for the apparel oft proclaims the man. Well, that's true in Christian things. We have garments provided for us. If you go back to the book of Genesis, we're told in chapter 2, and God finished the work. Finished the work and rested. And you don't need, to, need me to tell you what the first work he did, do you? After that, when sin came into this world, the first act that God did was to make coats. Immediately the symbol of clothing comes in. He clothes them with coats of skin that could only be provided by sacrifice. And you trace it through the scriptures till you get to the last book of the Revelation. And there you get them. They shall be given white linen garments for they shall walk with me in white and they are worthy. The symbolism of the garments goes right the way through from one end to the other. So I felt that we could profit by letting some of this be our guide this evening as we consider the external expression of salvation that is indicated by this figure. Now while we have Isaiah before us, let's look at the alternative, chapter 64. 
But we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses, you notice the plural, uh, that is suggestive in the Hebrew. We don't use plurals like that in the ordinary way. Uh, but this is to emphasize it. The very best things you can think of, righteousnesses. Even so, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So in one chapter, these people are told to put on their beautiful garments. To put on the garments of salvation and the robe of righteousness. And the same people are told and the same people confess that all their own righteousness is as filthy rags. And it adds, we all do fade as a leaf. And there's a look back to the Garden of Eden there. For what they clothe themselves with in the Garden of Eden would fade like a leaf and be hopeless. But the garment that God gives us is permanent and everlasting. <coughs> so we have that emphasis there. And you remember that there could be no patchwork with regard to the robe that we have. It's complete. It's not a mixture of your work and mine. Would you look at Deuteronomy chapter 22 for a symbolism in this respect? Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 9 to 11 22, 9 to 11 Thou shalt not sow thy vineyard with divers seeds uh, that is not husbandry today. We are not under the law of Moses. The uh, farmer is not working out symbolisms with regard to teaching. And so they very often find that by mixing seed and having different uh, seeds growing together, it's a good thing. But in Israel, no, because they were a people whose every act was to be symbolical. Thou shalt not sow thy vineyard with diverse seeds lest the fruit of the seed which thou hast sown and the fruit of the vineyard be defiled. Thou shalt not plough with an ox and an ass together. Thou shalt not wear a garment of divers sorts as a woolen and linen together. See? Well, any other Christians today would come under the uh, law there because we are, we are wearing all sorts of mixtures, but not Israel. There's an old Puritan hymn that speaks about the linsey woolsey garment. And it's referring to this. You cannot wear in the presence of God a mixture of your righteousness and the Lord's. It's one or the other. And in the one case it's judgment and the other case it's glorious acceptance. Shakespeare, in his will, leaves a linsey woolsey curtain to his wife. And I've seen it at Stratford-on-Avon. And that's the symbol, a mixture. No mixture with regard to service, the ox and the ass. No mixture with regard to seed. No mixture with regard to clothing in his presence. Three great pictures in relation to gospel teaching. Well now, when we come to the New Testament, we find a word, or two words, that are very often repeated in the, New, in the epistles particularly. The two words are put on and put off. And if you look at the original, you'll discover that those words mean 
strictly speaking, to dress or to put on clothing, or to undress or to put off clothing. They can have the other meaning, just to put something off, but generally the main idea is putting on or putting off clothing. So should we now consider some of these passages and we turn to Ephesians chapter 4 for our first reference. Remembering, as we do, that the word in its original meaning would mean clothing. Ephesians 4, 24. <clears throat> we go back to verse 20. Ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him, and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. Now this truth that is in Jesus is now going to be explained. That ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man. I think we want to stop here for a moment. You cannot, friends, you cannot put off the old man. You can only put off his conversation. It's God alone can put off the old man. So keep your finger in Ephesians 4 and look at Romans 6 for a moment and see where the old man was put off. Romans 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth you should not serve sin. The old man was crucified with him. That's a thing you cannot do. But now in the strength of that, you can deal with his manner of life, his conversation, the things that belong to him. So leave the Lord to do the one thing. Don't try to put off the old man himself. But do remember that now you rise and walk in newness of life and serve in newness of spirit and the external manifestation of that is you put off his former conversation. And the word conversation doesn't merely mean what you talk about. It does, but it means your whole manner of life. So here we have this putting on something. But let me stop again and say nowhere in the scripture does it countenance the other use of the word to put on. One of the most sorry sights is to see a put on piety. Let us be frank and let us be open and let us be free. Let it be the real thing or not at all. But a mere mock modesty, a mere put-on piety, neither serves God nor man. So it's not a put-on in that sense. It's putting on in this sense, a putting on a clothing. And be ye renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man. So putting on the new man is like putting on the evidence that a new creation has taken place. That the mind inside is now being reflected by the clothing outside. You notice you're renewed in the spirit of your mind and then you put on the new man. The new man outside is manifesting the renewing inside. And they two, two go together. And no one can put on the new man externally in this sense who hasn't had the renewing of the mind in that sense. And so it's one of those things that those of us who say we believe Christ and acknowledge him as Saviour and Lord, we are expected now to be able to enter into this. This is the truth that is in Jesus, that is here made known in this mighty epistle, that those of us who would have to stand just where the Israelites stood and say, 
We are all as an unpleasing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Isn't it glorious to know that we've dropped the rags, and we've dropped the uncleanness, and the whole thing has come under a new creation, and we stand in the presence of God, accepted in the Beloved, and we put on our beautiful garments. Don't think that ugliness is necessarily a sign of being a saint. Of course we can run after beauty for its own sake and be devilish in our makeup. But when we get to the real concept, we remember that in the Old Testament it speaks about the beauty of holiness. And when you read the description given of the priest's garments, they were called garments of glory and beauty. And speaking about the clothing of the priests, I mentioned that it was God himself who made the coats of skin in Genesis 3. And it was God himself who designed and gave the pattern and decided the colours and what was to be on the selvage and how it was to be fitted round the neck. God himself, not Moses, not Aaron, God himself gave the whole thing and said, see you keep to the pattern that was shown you that included the very clothing of the priest. So this is a part of God's design for us that we should put on the garments of salvation. We should wear the robe of righteousness even though we are passing through this world. It's ours. Again, with regard to this question of being put on and put off, you might notice that it applies also in chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armour of God. So yet again, is something that God has provided for us as Christians and as believers. But this armour is for the time present. Uh, you and I are not going to strut about in armour in the glory that's coming, for that would be a monstrous thing. There's no need for it then. Helmets and shields and swords belong to a period of friction and frustration and opposition. But one day, the last enemy will be destroyed and with it all possibility of the need for wearing armour anymore. But for the moment, we are living in a day where the God of this world is active and we have principalities and powers that are antagonistic and we have been given a complete armour to put on but only one weapon, only one weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And our Saviour has told us how much we can trust it, because if there's anybody on this earth who could have spoken out of his own heart, it was our Saviour. But when he was tempted of the devil, the only thing he said to him was, it is written three times, and the devil left him. So that the weakest child of God can do what the great son of God did, trust entirely to the fact that it is written. And remember, that is the one weapon that God has given us. So we put on the armour of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And he goes on to tell us that our wrestling is not with flesh and blood but with spiritual wickedness. Not to do with all the various things that, that folks run meetings for and I've got great sympathy with those who sit down in Trafalgar Square and make themselves um, a nuisance because they feel that they must agitate for things. 
But here's a, a conflict, and here's a provision that should occupy a great deal of our thoughts and attention and see to it that we are not misled, led away. Again, we read about the armour with another interpretation attached to it if you look at Romans, the 13th chapter. 13th chapter. At the close of the chapter, he says, um, verse 11, And knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armour of light. So now there's another description given. Ephesians spoke about the rulers of the darkness of this world. And here we are again faced with the fact that it's the conflict between darkness and light. Let us walk honestly, as in the day. Not in rioting and drunkenness and in chambering and wantonness. Not in strife and envying. But put on, oh it doesn't say now put on the armour. Do you see what it says? Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. The next time, you see, he says, put on the armour of light. Put on Christ. In other words, clothe yourself with all that God has made Christ to be to you so that you may be able to witness and stand and not be afraid. I think again we have a parallel to this in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, where the apostle says, Verse 26 and 27. For we are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You have been baptized into Christ. That may have to be interpreted according to the uh, time and the church and the dispensation that was running. But it means you are identified with Christ. Baptism here has the meaning of the crossing of the Red Sea, they were baptized into Moses. And the believer is baptized into Christ. Well now he says, the only way you can exhibit that to somebody else is you put on Christ. You put on externally what Christ is to you internally. Well now there's another use of this word, to be clothed, and it would not come to our mind in the ordinary way, but it is very true that it is expressed over and more than once, in the scriptures. And the two epistles that elaborated most of the one and two Corinthians. The first Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15 verses 53 and 54. Of course you know that this is the great chapter concerning resurrection. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. I think the two definitions there are equivalent to those which are alive and remain for the coming of the Lord and those who have already fallen asleep. Whether they're corruptible or whether they're mortal, they must change. So when this corruptible shall have put on 
Here again you've got the figures of clothing. Put on in corruption. And this mortal should have put on immortality. Then should be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Now one of the things which you will discover, uh, and it's quite a useful uh, piece of practice, is to take these two epistles to the Corinthians and observe how a word that's been dropped in the first Corinthians is picked up and developed in the second. Will you turn to Second Timothy chapter 5 to see one example of this? Second Corinthians chapter 5. Now, this is a strange expression about death being swallowed up in victory, isn't it? Swallowed up. Well, of course, you know you're going to read that in 2 Corinthians 5, don't you? Let's read the first few verses. For we know that if our earthly house, that is, of this tent, this mere tent we have, if that were to be dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. Now, would you have ever thought of being clothed upon with a house? Not in our ordinary use of the words. But this is so a part, integral part of the teaching of Scripture that it uses it of even putting on resurrection, putting on the newness of life that we're going to receive, or being clothed upon with a house. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For if we that are in this tabernacle or tent do groan, for we do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up, see the figure coming again, swallowed up of life. So we've got now the idea that when at last we attain to that glory that awaits us, we shall put on something that will correspond to the salvation that God has already worked. We only can do it now in part, very, very feebly. But then, what a day that will be when we shall put on immortality and when we shall be like him and with him forever. Well now, another exhortation comes to you and to me in the epistle to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, verse, um, I think, I don't know where we go back now. Uh, right back to verse 8. Now he also put off, here it comes again, put off all these. These, look friends, are not garments of beauty, are they? Look at them. Fancy being clothed with anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of our mouths all represented as something we are wearing that God and angels and men can see. Lie not one to another, seeing you have what? You have put off the old man with his deeds. See, the old man and his conversation and the old man with his deeds, both of them. And you have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Now, this is a link with Genesis 
And it's a link with Colossians chapter 1. For it says that Christ is the image of the invisible God, chapter 1. And he says you are to be renewed in the image of him that created him. So whatever God intended with regard to Adam being made the likeness of the image of God is carried right through to its glorious conclusion here. And in that capacity, in that position, he says where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, Barbarian, Syrian, bond, nor free, but Christ is all, and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on this, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. I know some folks have great pleasure in doing what they call window shopping. Well, anyhow, we can look here. Look in this window at the garments that are exhibited for those who belong to Christ. Put on, therefore. I was reading some of the different fashions that have been created again by these different folks. The ladies are going to be square or they're going to be triangular. They're going to have waists or they're not going to have waists and all the many things. And here's another designer. Here's another set. There are always some garments, friends, here. These are the ones. Put on, therefore, as this elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. And it even says, I know, oh, I know you'll need it if any man ever quarrel against any. Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, as though something that you put on at the very last, something that you put on that's going to be the the one touch above all these things. Put on love, not merely charity. Put on love. But oh, friends, oh, friends, don't put it on in the wrong sense, will you? I've said so many times, I'll say it again, the word love is desecrated. It's made to rhyme, you know, and it's sung out and screamed out. And as I say, some people, when you get on a bus or when you go into a shop, they say, yes, love and so on. Till at last, it means nothing. But this is the one at long last to put on. Put on love. And you know what this is? This is the bond of perfectness. Now, Paul has spoken of the bond of peace in Ephesians. He speaks of the bond of perfectness in Colossians. And you may think they're two distinct things. But Paul knew the Hebrew language. And the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, is the word that means perfect. Because, you see, peace is the result of everything being completely settled. When two nations fight one another, exhaust all their manhood, use up all their, their munitions, and have got no more money in the bank, they have peace. But that isn't peace. It'll break out again. But when the thing is completely settled, thou shalt pay ox for ox. When the whole thing is settled, that's peace. So it is put on the bond of peace, or the bond of perfectness. And if you want one more bond to keep it all in place, you have your loins girt about with truth. Of course, that's underneath. You don't show those things, or you're supposed not to. But believe me, friends, if your loins are not girt about with truth, you can pile on all these beautiful garments and you'll be a fraud. You'll be a fraud. 
and it will soon be obvious. But if the, if the unseen, the invisible is there, the loins girt about with truth, then by his mercy we could put on at long last, above all these things, love, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God act the umpire in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Of course, we could go on continuing the reading. But there's another one that I think we ought to include, and that is found in the epistle of Peter. 1 Peter, chapter 5, verse 5. Another article of clothing that Peter picks out. Uh, where are we now? 1 Peter 5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. And then he stops. He says, oh no, all right, I'll write it again. Yea, all of you be subject one to another. That's better. And be ye clothed with humility. Again, you see, this is so wonderful a grace that it could easily be distorted and desecrated. As I've said before, we want no Uriah heaps in God's assembly. A mock humility is a dreadful thing. But the real thing, how charming, how wonderful. And be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. And now I want to turn, as a close of this study, to a passage which I dare say some of you already expected me to turn to, and that is the picture which we have in Zechariah chapter 3. Here you get a little sample of the way in which the Old Testament uses this reference to garments in this symbolic sense. Zechariah chapter 3. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. Although it's not our subject, the word resist is the word Satan. It's noun and verb together. To Satan him. There's one thing you could never say about the devil. He does his job. And no half-hearted about it. If he's a Satan, he does it completely. To Satan him, acting in character. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. If you looked at that, high priest, he would have been a resplendent figure because of the garments he wore, but this is to do with the spiritual side of it. And this high priest who represented this people, Satan could see and God could see that he was just clothed like the rest in filthy garments <coughs> as they had to confess in Isaiah's prophecy. And he stood before the angel like that. And he answered and spake unto them that stood before him, saying, 
Take away the filthy garments from him. Take away. And then it's explained. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee. Take away. That's the first thing. And I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. And I believe that's what God has done to every one of us that are saved. He takes away. He took them away from our first parents and gave them the change of raiment. He won't allow the two to be together. You must be stripped in his presence first. And this high priest take away. But he wasn't allowed to remain like that. And I will clothe thee with change of raiment. And then he goes further with this high priest. And I said, let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. And so this man was cleansed and clothed and crowned. And I believe everyone that's listening to my voice, at least in this little company, can be said that's true of them. Cleansed. We have been cleansed by the precious blood of Christ. Clothed. For the forgiveness of sins is the negative, it's taking away. And the imputation of righteousness is the positive, it's giving. Cleansed. Clothed. But grace leads to glory. Crowned. And so we have this figure that we can dwell upon. And then only, then only comes if in verse 7. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, if thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shall also keep my courts, and I will give thee place to walk among those that stand by. That is to say, only when you're cleansed, and clothed, and crowned, when you're completely saved and accepted in the beloved, does God then say now, I'll, I'll consider your service, and I can even uh, reward that service. But that, of course, is another matter. I've just got written in front of me the words that I will quote at the finish. They found a man out of whom the devils were departed, sitting at the feet of Christ, clothed, and in his right mind. That's a picture, isn't it? And the last word I would say is this. The word salvation is the word soteria. And the word sophronio is to have a salvation mind. Our version says a sober mind. And that's restricting it rather to one aspect. A sober mind in the New Testament is a mind that becomes salvation. So you see, at long last, we turn away from the mere figure of garments and robes and clothing to these spiritual qualities, meekness, love. Put on Christ and all that he means to you. So that the external exhibition that is made, that eyes can see, will be a proof to them that the internal thing which God alone can see, the new man which is created after Christ in righteousness, is the reality. Oh, I pray that we may not have felt that we have spent our time in vain in this study, 
not emphasizing tonight that salvation is by grace, not emphasizing tonight that it's by the substitutionary work of Christ, but emphasizing tonight that we who have been redeemed should seek to adorn, you see, that's what the Lord says, adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things.